0: Hello everyone and welcome to the Indefensible Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensibleplants.com. What's up? This is your host Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? Have you ever wondered about the mechanics of seed dispersal, especially among species like witch hazel that have ballistic methods where they literally shoot their seeds out? Well, if you ever have or if now you're wondering about it because I mentioned it, you're in luck because today we are talking to Justin George. He's a PhD student in the field of eco-mechanics and he Among other things, studies the mechanics of seed dispersal, and he has turned his attention to numerous species in the witch hazel family. When you hear the accelerations and the mechanics involved in this, it's going to blow your mind, and it's going to bring a whole new appreciation for these wonderful shrubs. I don't want to steal any of his thunder, but before we get to that, I just want to say shows like this can't happen without support, and there's a lot of great ways to do that. One of the best is to pick up some of our customizable merch. There's some great prints, and like I said, they're customizable, so you can put them on a style that works for you. Links can be found to our merch site over at indefensiveplants.com/podcast. Either look at the top and click on apparel, or navigate to the show notes for any of the podcast episodes. I will put those links in there as well. But that is entirely enough for me. I don't want to keep you from this any longer. Justin's work is so fascinating, so let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Justin George. I hope you enjoy. Mm-hmm. All right, Justin George, it is awesome to have you on the podcast. I can't wait to talk to you about your area of study today. But for those that aren't familiar with your work, let's start off with an introduction. Tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do.
1: Hey, everybody. Um, first of all, thanks, Matt, for letting me on the podcast. It's an awesome experience. I'm a six-year PhD student at Duke University in the lab of Dr. Sheila Paddock. Uh, I would consider myself a student of biomechanics, so kind of studying how organisms move. Uh, And the kind of questions I love grappling with kind of revolve around this idea of how do you measure accurately how organism moves in a lab setting, but still making sure that the the results from these experiments don't alienate um, how this organism is in its natural context or its Mm. environment. So I think um, this field is actually more accurately coined ecomechanics, this kind of blend between the tool sets of ecology and biomechanics. Um, more specifically, I work on um, the echomechanics of ultra fast organisms in the lab of in the paddock lab. We study a lot of ultra fast motions in biology, um, such as the mantis shrimp strike, the trap jaw ants, or, of course, ultra fast plants.
0: Nice. Yeah. I was going to say the. it's funny to talk to you about movement and then people go, wait plant podcast, but we'll get to that. Yeah, it's really cool. How did you find yourself in this field or like this field of study, I should say? I mean, is this something you wanted to pursue as a kid or did you kind
1: of stumble into it through some sort of introduction through education, whatever? I would say I really stumbled into it um, mainly in college, but I think looking back, the signs were all there. So when I was young, (laughs) I was really interested in biology and how mainly animals i would say at that time sure admittedly so looking at how you can poke a roly-poly and it'll curl into a little ball (laughs) um or the venus flytrap, of course that's a modified leaf i would look at these like cool biological systems on my walks and then i'd go to the library with my mom and we'd get some books and learn more about these systems um and uh, the whole time too i also loved building things i loved legos I love taking apart toy cars. I love finding things around the house and making catapults. So <laughs> I kind of had those two interests my childhood, right? Yeah. And then when it came to high school, those kind of manifested in me loving biology as a subject. Um, and then also joining a robotics club.
0: Nice. Um, nice. I
1: didn't I didn't really get too good at robotics at there. It was kind of <laughs> kind of tough and kind of a big leap. Um, but that kind of evolved into me going into college and um pursuing biology as a major, but still keeping that engineering and robotics um flame alive by joining this outreach through robotics club at uc Mm -hmm. berkeley when i went to college it's called pioneers in engineering it's a really really cool group basically we host uh, a robotics competition for local high schools that can't afford like the big state or big national competitions like first robotics or vex um and we kind of provide them with the kits for robots some mentors and just let them let them lose you know and that's a really cool experience um and then And while I was at Berkeley, I found out that my two interests, biology and this kind of engineering robotics, it's not doesn't have to be separate. There's this kind of field of biomechanics Um, and UC Berkeley was a a great hub for that. Um, I was able to join the lab of Dr. Mimi Cole, and I I worked in the biomechanics of uh, predation of between uh, single cellular organisms or protists and how some organisms create these cool flow fields that kind of suck in other protists and and, um, eat them and stuff like that. It's very cool. Nice.
0: And so here you are. But, you know, that leap, you can have these interests, right? It's easy to get geeking out on both fields and really, you know, the, the, the intersection there where they combine. But I would imagine, you know, whether you start in engineering or you start in biology to become a graduate student and eventually work towards a career in this, that, that pickup rate of like, okay, I might be strong in this field, but I have a lot of work to do in this other one. Was there challenges inherent in trying to really combine these fields in a meaningful way for you at least?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. So I, I would say one of the big things there is physics. So <laughs> physics in uh, high school, I mean, I kind of I, I kind of brushed over it. And also through um, college, learning about physics was kind of challenging. And a lot of the classes were pretty tough. But I think the field of biomechanics kind of put physics in perspective. It made it a lot more fun to learn, mm. um, especially when you're watching a seed fly across a, a screen or something like that <laughs> so I understand uh, kinematics. Now I actually care about kinematics and that's really cool and um, learning the tool sets on how to study this motion. It kind of puts those subjects that you didn't really enjoy before in a better context and more fun to learn. Nice.
0: Yeah. That's kind of how I work too. If it's applied to something I'm interested in, I'm way more likely to pick it up. So it's good to see you can kind of follow that and, and find your niche, so to speak. But, you know, when you think about where you started, you were starting with things that even at the unicellular level, Are known for movement or producing some form of movement and venus flytraps are generally speaking kind of the exception to the plant rule we generally don't think of plants moving at least not on a scale that would generally interest uh you know the eco mechanics field but how did you find yourself starting to make this transition from you know like you said trapjot ants into
1: the world of more sessile organisms so this is really cool so this is kind of the cool revelation i had Um, throughout my PhD. I I actually started off studying animals and then looking at animal motions and then eventually transitioned to plant motions. I think a lot of times we think plants don't don't uh, are are they stay in place, but that's simply because we're we don't we don't comprehend their their timescale of their motions. They're either moving too slow to pick up or they're moving too fast to pick up, which is really kind of cool to me. Um, So I think looking at these ultra fast plant motions, specifically seed dispersal, how they how these plants shoot out their seeds really fast, kind of incorporates both sides of these things. So there is one part of studying this, this system where you're looking at how they develop their fruits over long periods of time. Um, and then there's the one split second when they shoot out their seeds, you know, that's ultra fast and too fast to comprehend without a high-speed camera. So it's like the weird realm where you either need a time-lapse camera or a really high-speed camera. Ah, I love
0: that, yeah, I mean, the extremes of tech uh, just opening up yeah, a whole world we don't get to comprehend, at least by our our vision or other senses. But you mentioned ultra fast a
1: couple of times now.
0: Where does something become an ultra fast movement? You've got fast, and then
1: is there a point at which it becomes ultra fast? Um, this is a bit of a challenging one. So I guess to, to answer this question, you kind of have to comp- compare them to traditional fast. So I guess, say we're looking at acceleration. Mm-hmm. So traditional fast when you think of a biological fast system is say like a cheetah or a peregrine falcon or a sailfish um i would say they have accelerations similar to around the range of 10 meters per second squared okay Uh, above that and one order of magnitude 100 meters per second squared you have the accelerations of a formula one race car nice above that you have the accelerations this is a thousand meters per second squared you have the accelerations of a missile and here is where you start getting the first ultra-fast uh, organisms. <laughs> this is this, the um, acceleration of a little tiny grain of rice called a midge larva. Uh. Um, it's kind of this kind of, I guess, kind of worm-looking thing that kind of curls, curls into a little C-shape and then flicks against the ground and then flings itself into the air. And the accelerations of that of that flick is around 1,000 meters per second. Um, above that, we actually have the accelerations of some uh, plant systems. Wow. We have the accelerations of seeds being shot out by, um, I think, the oxalis plant. Okay. And above that, we have the accelerations of a bullet shot from a gun, 100,000 meters per second squared. <laughs> oh, what organism could possibly have accelerations uh, at the speed of a bullet shot from a gun? And wow. the answer to that is the trap, Johan. So that's kind of the first organism I started studying in the paddock lab. Is this trap giant? And they have these large mandibles that they can snap shut really, really, really fast.
0: Nice. So I guess
1: this only answer the question again. See, it's kind of comparing things against uh, fast. And would you say that a thousand meters per second squared counts right. as ultra fast or above that? It's kind of tricky. But the, the cool underlying thing about all these systems from plants, animals, and even fungi are in order to be ultra fast, they had to use a spring. They can't directly. Actually, they can't produce these motions with their muscles alone or in the case of Mm. plants and fungi with the movement of water alone. They had to load energy into a spring first and then rapidly release the energy from the spring. It's kind of like a bow and arrow.
0: Okay. So it's like they build up a potential energy, not an outright motion that does it. But nevertheless, I mean, most of what you just named mechanically there took hundreds of millions of dollars to develop and are some of the most like high achieving technological advancements in movement and acceleration that humans have done. And yet there's still biological organisms that have evolved to match, you know, not in that sort of sense, like agency, but like right. biology
1: has done it and has been doing it for millions of years. I'm telling you, that's the reason why I got interested in biomechanics. Is as a, as someone who got, got his feet wet in the field of robotics, and at the time drones were huge, right? Like the idea yeah. of these drones flying around and making small portable drones. That was huge at the time. Um, but when I looked at a fly... Imagine swatting a fly in your house. That's so much better than a drone. I mean, it can move really fast, change directions. What about a jumping spider moving across a terrain versus like a a classic four legged robot trying to move across terrain clumsily? You know, a yeah. jumping spider can move around, jump across gaps. We have so much to learn from biology, I think, and um, that we can learn a lot to improve our technology by looking at biology.
0: Totally. And so with that in mind, the reason we connected today was you have turned your attentions, at least in recent uh, times, to a group of plants many people listening will be familiar with, the witch hazels. Where did that come onto your radar?
1: Yeah, that's a cool story. So uh, our our lab, the Paddock Lab, is known for having these ultra-fast, these high-speed cameras, basically really, really good slow-mo cameras. Mm-hmm. Um, and one day, one of the, the professors in the lab, Dr. Paul Manos, I think he was on the show a couple of yeah. A while back, yeah, um, you came down to the lab and said, "Uh, these plants are shooting their seeds off, and you should put them under a high-speed camera. These are witch hazel fruits." And he brought out some witch hazel fruits, um, and he left them over here and said, "Give them a shot. See what happens when they when they dry out and shoot their seeds." So I put one of those fruits in front of a high-speed camera, um, let it dry out, and eventually I got this really cool motion of this fruit kind of spiraling out of this, of uh, the seed spiraling out of this fruit. Um, and I was filming at that point at 60K FPS, just for reference of iPhone slow-mo feature is at 200 frames oh, per second. Wow. This is 60K FPS. And there was still motion blur. That means I was still not filming high enough. Dang. Um, so this was an incredibly fast motion. Wow. That's so I cool.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like those curious moments, like, hey, you've got tech, let's have some fun with it, see where it goes. Like no planning in terms of like, let's make this your entire dissertation, right?
1: Yeah. And then from that comes all the questions. I mean, this is a really cool looking seed shooter compared to, say, traditional. Um, so that got me started in the whole rabbit hole of looking at all these cool seed shooting plants. I was looking at, uh, of course, the Hura this the sandbox tree. I was looking at Cardamini um, hirsuta, the hairy bittercrest, some jewelweed. Um... All kinds of plants even the, the dwarf mistletoe
0: nice and
1: uh, okay barring the the hero crapetence the large sandbox tree all of these are kind of these small herbs right and you kind of have these fruits that burst open and kind of shower the surrounding area with a lot of small seeds the witch hazel is a little different in that it has this kind of first of all it's a large shrub right um it has these fruits that kind of have one to two seeds and they shoot them in the same direction they're kind of like yes. the snipers of the of the plant sea shooters, you know, versus the kind of exploding right. uh, bombs of the previous fruits.
0: That's cool. And so when you're setting up to try to even observe this before you go into the describing the mechanics and all of that sort of stuff, I mean, it, there's got to be like this lag period or you set it all up, you wait for a couple of days for it to dry. And then ah, I was out of frame or ah, I was out of focus. Like, How much effort goes into even just capturing the first few images, let alone getting
1: enough data to actually study this sort of stuff? Oh man, yeah, that's a good question. So, um, yeah, this is kind of the the tough parts early on when when filming this this system. Uh, it just involved literally me waiting in front of the camera, waiting on the trigger for it to to go off. I mean, there's no way to really trigger this 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 motion. You can have to wait for the fruit to dry out, open up, and shoot. Um, it's funny because in order to to measure these things, in order to measure ultra fast systems in general, it's not like a traditional camera camcorder where you kind of press start and kind of wait for it Mm. to go because you might be waiting for hours on end. You don't you never know when the motion is going to happen. Right. Luckily with these high speed cameras, you have something called an end trigger. So basically it will fill up the memory buffer uh, with enough data. And then once it reaches that buffer, it'll kind of save over the previous data and keep looping over and over and over again until you press stop. And then when you press stop, it saves the previous X amount of time that that memory buffer filled up. Right. The tough part is that that memory buffer is not that big. So a lot of times that means you have six seconds about to press the trigger. So the motion happens and then you have to register in your mind that that motion just happened and then find the trigger and stop, stop the camera. Oh, wow. So with really fast systems, a lot of times you don't even notice the seat have gone off and then you have to press stop. Luckily with the wails, there's a very loud kind of pop <laughs> and I had them in an aquarium tank. So okay. it'll make this, um, this kind of noise. It's kind of like tap noise, you know? <laughs> and then that would shock me awake and I'm like, okay I gotta, I gotta press the button and then i stop it and then I, I usually capture it then um but over time after working with the system for so long um i developed a, my own trigger so basically it's like a, a homemade macgyver kind of aluminum foil thing where when the seat hits one side of the foil it connects to another side of the foil and um, it stops the camera automatically
0: oh that's so i can fun. just i can
1: i can have the camera running I, I can leave when i hear that that click i can go back Make sure the video uh, was was stopped properly and then reload it, put a new fruit in front of there and keep going. Wow.
0: So engineering has been helpful to you in a lot of different aspects <laughs> yeah. of doing this work, you know? <laughs> like exactly. I, I gotta rig something. I'm not gonna be that grad student that's in the lab for
1: hours on end at all hours. And I I, I can't be just sitting there. I, I I have to be able to work on something. And I keep trying to work while like I'll say I'll capture it. But then like you're always in the back of your head, you're nervous that you're gonna miss this shot, you right. know. So it ends up me just end up waiting and staring at the screen, even though I, I know I need to be reading papers or be studying <laughs> for this test or something like that. Yeah.
0: It's not like you're not busy in grad school, right? <laughs> <laughs>
1: exactly.
0: That's amazing, though, because I think even in the process of just, A, you captured it on film, you have records of this that you can then share to the public uh, in any way, shape, or form. But to have witnessed it yourself is pretty spectacular. I have spent countless hours around witch hazels. Never once have I seen this happen. So, you know, it's also this the sense of like, we're seeing something here, and we're going to even see it in more detail, that not a lot of people, even those out in the woods a lot, get to experience and appreciate.
1: Isn't that so cool? Yeah. Yeah.
0: That's really neat. That's incredible.
1: That's the, one of the, the pulls of a PhD. Yeah. It's kind of being the forefront of a certain field or something like that.
0: So you set this up. The first few images you got were at 60,000, you said, uh, frames per yeah. second. You're seeing motion blur. Something cool is happening. What's the next steps? I mean, you have? obviously you want to slow it down even more. You want to start to appreciate what's going on. Like, what did you have to do to really still like start to understand this?
1: Yeah, so the whole reason why motion blur isn't that great is because what we usually do with these videos is um, find the velocity of whatever motion it is. Mm. So basically we track, say, the seed or uh, a mantis trump appendage or a trap giant mandible in each frame. And we go through each frame and mark the position of that mandible. Now that now we know that the the time between each frame is uh, related to the frame rate. So for one hundred or for sixty thousand frames per second, each frame is one sixty thousandth of a second, right? Yeah. Um, and we know that that seed has moved this far in that amount of time. But if there's motion blur, it's kind of inaccurate. We can't kind of tell where the seed is. It's mm-hmm. kind of this kind of blur, this kind of smudge. Um, so the next step, of course, was bumping the frame rate up. Luckily, we have these cameras that can go up to those higher frame rates. So we just simply bumped it up to 100K FPS, 100,000 frames per second, um, and was able to capture the seed pretty nicely with that frame rate. Nice. What's crazy about this is that that's the same frames, the same frame rate I was using to capture the trap giant mandible strikes. Oh, so wow. these plants are just as fast, if not faster than some of these animal systems.
0: Which you already illustrated are right up there with bullets. <laughs> Yeah, acceleration-wise. Yeah. Right, right, exactly. Let's let's So exactly. let's clear that up a little bit because I don't have a physics or engineering background. What is
1: the difference between speed and the acceleration? Like, wh- why make that distinction? So speed or velocity is how long it takes for you to get from one point to another. Acceleration is how long it takes to get up to speed. So uh, um, if you're pressing the accelerator of a car, um, they kind of say zero to 60 in X amount of seconds. It's like, how do you get up to speed how do you get to sixty miles per hour? How long does it take to get to sixty miles per hour? Right. So that's the idea of acceleration. These systems are very, very fast. Are very have very, very high accelerations, but um, the velocities of these seeds, the speed of these seeds, is roughly around twelve meters per second.
0: Sure, that's like you so can have like an electric car that gets to zero to sixty in two seconds, but where does it max out at? So you know, versus a Ferrari, that kind of thing.
1: <laughs> right. Exactly. Yep. Yep. So yeah. you have these seeds going from zero to twelve meters per second in a crazy fast amount of time. Yeah. A crazy short amount of time, sorry.
0: Yeah, yeah. So w- what kind of forces is a seed experiencing as it's flying out at that rate of acceleration? It's got to be pretty astronomical. Uh, maybe even uh, pun intended there.
1: <laughs> yeah, so this is this is the cool part. And this is the, the part where I have to tell you, I actually, we actually can't answer that question yet. Nice. So here's the thing. So um, the kind of mechanism of sea shooting here is similar to when you get a watermelon seed between your fingers and pinch it. It's okay. a pinching mechanism. So basically, as the as the as the um structure that surrounds the seed, it's called the endocarp. It's this kind of hard woody structure. As it dries out, it kind of warps. It tries to warp like a like a wood warping, you know, it kind of bends. Yeah. Um, but what prevents it from bending is the seed itself. So the seed's kind of preventing this warping. Now, at a certain point, the seed cannot hold back this, this endocarp from warping and it gets pinched out. And that's what happens when it, it gets shot out. Um the problem here is that we need to find a way in order to uh, answer your question of measuring forces, mm. we have to find where this uh, endocarp is making contact with the seed and mm. kind of start measuring the, the forces between this endocarp and the seed. So we need to somehow place uh, a, a kind of uh, device that records force between those two things, which is kind of difficult, yeah. or do some kind of more uh, creative solutions to kind of externally look at the system and see how, where the force is being applied. It gets tricky really fast, but force is kind of a tricky thing to answer, which is why I, I turn to energy instead. Yeah.
0: I mean, that's still amazing, right? Because even just knowing where you're at currently opened up so many more questions, right? And that's what's exactly. so exciting about science like this is maybe you're not the person that's going to answer that, but you've now set the stage to go, hey, that's weird. We haven't been able to figure it out. Take the next step
1: please someone out there, I would love to have a a math model of uh, how this endocrine pinches on the seed. That's one thing I really wanted to to, to do in my PhD, but alas, I don't think I'm gonna have enough time to do that. So that could be really cool. For the next PhD, my friend. Exactly.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So you didn't just stop with one species of witch hazel, right? Like there was a, a few different ones to study. I mean, were they all similar or like, how did you start to compare and contrast between different species or cultivars,
1: whatever you looked at? Uh, would you mind if I go on a little bit of a tangent here? Please I mean, do. Is, uh, yeah, that's why we're here. So uh, this kind of, I want to give a little context to why I even started looking at other um, plants than the traditional witch hazel. And when I say witch hazel, it's going to get confusing later. I mean, hemamellus virginiana. Okay. Um. Yeah. So why did I, why did I look up to other species, other uh, species of the witch hazel? Um, one of the big questions I had when looking at the biomechanics of ultra fast systems of, or systems that use springs to shoot out projectiles, right? So in, in that case, that can be a mantis shrimp or a trap jaw ant. Where in a trap jaw ant, the spring is um, is it has a spring and it, it's shooting out a projectile, which is the mandibles. You know, right? Um, in the plants, it's uh, this it has a spring, the endocarp I was talking about, and the um, projectile is the seed. One thing I was looking at when looking at all these different um, biomechanical systems, ultra fast systems, I was really curious about how these systems scale. So I noticed that the projectiles of these systems kind of vary greatly in mass. So you can see like the spores of a fungus, Mm. like a a spore fungus that's being shot out to say a jumping frog, which has kind of a spring like element and it's in its junk. That's a huge range in size, right? Right. Even within plants itself, you can have, you have this range. You can look at the seeds of Cardamini hirsuta or Oxalis, where you have these really tiny seeds, or you can compare that to the seeds of Herocrepitans with this kind of giant Kind of pumpkin, baseball kind of size thing <laughs> yeah. that kind of bursts open, right? So, um, what I was interested in is how do you how do you start comparing these guys? Because one one idea you could have is that as the projectile increases in size, you would need an equally larger spring. You would need mm. something that a, a, a bigger thing to launch that projectile. Say you have a crossbow and you have a crossbow, and you you launch an arrow that's made of wood. What if you use the exact same crossbow and you get a really heavy lead arrow and put it on there? Hmm. What you'd expect is the arrow to just kind of fall off, right? (laughs) Right. So there must be some kind of interesting tuning here between the spring and the projectile in these systems. The tough thing about this is that when you're trying to study uh, traditional uh, ultra fast systems, a lot of times, uh, uh, admittedly, they're animal systems, Mm -hmm. um, you're kind of at a loss of trying to first identify what the spring is, and then trying to isolate that spring. Where does this the spring structure begin and where does it end in the, this animal? It has all this goopy muscle around it. How do you isolate that? The really cool thing about this is that the witch hazel became kind of the ideal study system for this because oh. you can literally take out the endocarp out of the fruit and it's its own structure. In fact, you can take out the endocarp and seed, bring it out of the fruit, and then it'll still shoot off. Oh wow! So you can you can actually just have the seed and the endocarp and it, it'll it'll shoot off. So that's the only two components in the system. Huh. Endocarp seed easy. So in that case, the endocarp is a spring, the seed is the projectile. So, what was really fortuitous for me is when I did, did a dive into the witch hazel family, I found out that there are other seed shooting uh, members of the family, including Laura Petalum and Fortunaria. And what was even better—I mean, just keep getting better and better. What was even better was that Laura Petalum was about half the size of the of Hamamelis, uh-huh. and Fortunaria was about twice the size of Hamamelis. So we kind of have ah. a small, medium, and large
0: nice. to look at.
1: And they all share the same seed spreading mechanism. Yeah, the, the endocarps look slightly different, but more or less they're kind of the same uh, fortune cookie shaped structure um, that kind of pitches on a seed. So they they kind of share the same mechanism of dispersal. Wow. Um, the seeds look kind of similar, but just of course small, medium, large, and you have this cool size range. That is really cool, and it you know. The other
0: thing that, like, this opens up is, like, evolutionarily speaking, why? I mean, those are different genera, albeit united under the same family, but all of them have kind of converged across scaling mechanisms, a, a similar approach to seed dispersal. What drives that? And that, to me, exactly. is also another great question that comes up.
1: Oh, my God. And yeah, and yeah, at the base of the tree, there's this uh, genus x and they have these seeds that are kind of winged seeds that they kind of, op- the fruits open up and they just kind of drop them. Huh. Um, so it's, it's really interesting to think. And then what happened to go from there to a sea shooting?
0: Yeah. Right. Yeah. And what needs to happen? Right. And, and like, again, coming back to this, it's not that this plant has a muscle that's going pushing and squeezing it's, it's through the drying of the endocarp, you know, like you said, you can detach it completely and it still works to to me. That is just so cool that I don't even know if I'm using this or it's almost passive. (laughs) Right. Yeah. 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 So what did you find when you started to look at those, despite the the size differences, like what kind of came out of looking at different genera within this family?
1: Yeah. So here's the prediction. The idea was kind of based on that um cartoon of a crossbow. Yeah. So we have this spring. If we if we change the projectile, if we have increasingly heavier seeds, we expect that the heavier seeds will not go as far as the lighter seeds. Mm-hmm. Um this was not what we saw. So this oh. is not what we saw at all. We saw that across all three genera, um, or I guess species, Hamamellus, Virginiana, Pelham, Chinens, and um uh Fortuneria sinensis, they all had similar uh launch speeds. Wow. Across this order of magnitude increase in seed mass. So at first we were we were kind of floored, and then we we're kind of like, oh duh. Uh it, our our hypothesis was based that the the spring, the crossbow, didn't change at all. But Ah. that's not the case perhaps maybe the spring is also changing across these systems so what we all what we did next was start measuring um the spring in these systems and how does this how does um energy stored in the spring change across these this size range nice and i mean does
0: it have something to do with sort of the the cellular structure within that endocarp i mean it's i'm
1: guessing scales (laughs) right Right. So this is this is the, the great wall that we hit once we, we start looking at springs of these um, ultra fast systems. How do you measure these weird springs? Um, a lot of times these springs are not these nice coils or rectangle sheets or the kind of springs we have in our uh, uh, mechanical systems. A lot of times they are these weird geometrically complex blobs or or weird shell structures that we have. Um, and that is definitely the case with, with the witch hazel endocarp. I, I keep calling it like a fortune cookie shaped structure. Um, yeah. Um, you, can, you can check out the paper and you, there's a, a yeah. nice image of, of what the um, endocarp looks like. How do you how do you measure energy storage in this thing? So that was the big question I had to grapple with. Um, it's one thing to say that this is what we need to measure next. Another right. thing is to actually get the data from it. Um, so the way I approached this was kind of similar to how uh, um, you measure energy stored in a traditional spring. You kind of stretch it out uh, a set distance and see how much force it took to stretch it out that distance. That's kind of the general idea of how you measure these, these springs. But um, in this case, we have to get an idea of how, um, how the endocarp recoils, how the, this plant spring behaves. So what we did is we got a time lapse of these fruits drying out, kind of filmed head on. Um, and what we saw is that as they dried out, you have the fruit slowly opening and then the sides kind of pinch in, They kind of squeeze in, mm. um, so what we had to do is find a way to open back, uh, already fired endocarp and kind of stretch it back to how it looked like before it shot its seed. Dang. So I kind of tried making these tiny little cantilevers. remember this whole thing's at the scale of uh, a couple of millimeters, <laughs> tiny little cantilevers and try to stretch it out back to where it was before and try to deform it back to its natural position. Mm. But. First of all, the cantilevers bent, even if they made a steel at that size scale, they kind of bend that way. I tried to make it as strong as possible. Sure. And another thing I was thinking about, too, is that this isn't very natural. Um, the, the seed is not applying forces at two points. It's applying forces all around this, this structure, mm. right? So after talking with some collaborators and, and kind of thinking about this question for a while, I came up with the idea that you can just get the seed and push it back into the endocarp. Huh. So and then that's kind of your probe is by pushing the seed back in the endocarp it will um, apply the same similar forces to the endocarp and deform it back to the way it was before. So that's what I did. I stuck it in a materials testing machine, um, pushed the seed against the the endocarp. And what the machine does is it accurately moves the, whatever it is, in this case, the seed, a set distance and measures the amount of force required to push it to that distance. Wow. And when you
0: start to think about that, scaling or not? I mean, what were you surprised by what you found? I mean, I don't really know what to expect going into something like that.
1: Right. So the initial expectation was that um, as the the endocarp, as the spring increases in size, perhaps it also increases in its ability to store energy. Perhaps Mm -hmm. larger springs can store more energy. And the reason why you'd you'd expect something like that is because these larger plants, like say the plants of fortunearia versus that of Loroopetalum, had both larger seeds and also larger endocarps, So perhaps these larger endocarps would store more energy. And uh, cool enough, that's what we found. We found that the larger springs of Fortunaria stored more energy than the smaller springs of Mm -hmm. Hamamelis and Lorapidolon. I love
0: that, man. I mean, again, it makes sense. This is one of the most important processes in any plant's life is getting its progeny away from it so that they're not competing, they have a chance at survival. That's hard selection, right? (laughs) Yeah, it makes sense that over time this would be tuned pretty well to whatever size, uh, you know, germplasm you're making.
1: I'll do you one better. So this is kind of an interesting thought that I was I was thinking about. Um, I I leave it out of the paper because I don't I don't necessarily um, study I don't address this with my data set. Sure. But we're talking about dispersal and what exactly is the point of dispersal, right? So we're looking at, is it beneficial to get your seeds as far away from the, the, the mother plant as possible? Um, in that case, I would argue that um, uh, explosive dispersal or or shooting your seeds out of fruits is not really great at that. It doesn't go yeah. at, that far. I mean, compared to, say, hitchhiking a ride on a bird or uh-huh. uh, using wind dispersal or water dispersal. This doesn't really do much for distance. So I was, I was grappling with this question a lot early in my PhD is what's the point of, of seed of dispersal? Of course, there may not be a point, you might just be locked into it evolutionarily, right. you might just that that's your only way to disperse, right. Um, and that's the way it's been. But I also thought maybe you have more control over your dispersal pattern mm. with with ex, with explosive dispersal, you're generating your own forces, you're not relying on environmental conditions, except maybe perhaps humidity and, and this kind of drying out process. Sure. But perhaps there's something to be said about the ability to change the spring and the projectile. If you have a heavier seed with a um, with a with the same spring, right, you might not disperse as far as if you made the seed lighter. But this might also have trade offs with how much uh, provisions you're storing in the seed, how much endosperm you have in this in the mm. seed um, for the embryo plant to grow. So there could be some cool trade offs and some cool tools that plants have to kind of tune the dispersal pattern and perhaps maybe germination. But again, in order to make those claims, you need to have a lot more data. And this is not the paper for that. You have to really start looking at germination patterns and um, dispersal patterns and over years of time. Right. So,
0: sorry, you got a career ahead of you to start worrying about that kind of <laughs> questions. But this is, I love this though, because, you know, a lot of us as scientists get really locked into a very narrow part of a very small system. And this is where those cross disciplinary, um, you know, intersectional sort of viewpoints really start to kind of make interesting. Uh, conjectures or ideas come to fruition that maybe aren't there or that people too close to it can't see. And that's what's really mm-hmm. neat about your background is coming in with both the biology and the engineering side. You get to start asking questions in different ways, or at least you're, you're, you're bringing different viewpoints to the table that that really have biological and evolutionary consequences or potentially there if you can go and investigate them. But that's where it starts, right? Yeah, definitely. Ah, oh, That is so exciting. And so with that, you know, across all of this you have learned a ton about a group of plants that you know again a lot of people will be familiar with but this is the first time anyone's really looked at it in this sort of detail are you more do you have a higher affinity now for the whole witch hazel family i mean did this change your perspective going from you know a very animal-based uh perspective to now a very plant-focused perspective
1: Oh, hands down. I love, I love plants and I love the witch hazels. Um, nice. <laughs> they also have really cool flowers. I, I, I always think of like little fireworks. Yeah. You know, you have those cool colors from uh, yellow to orange to red. Um, I Yeah, I definitely have a, 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 a newfound appreciation for witch hazels specifically, but also seed treating plants in general. Yeah. I think it's really cool to look at the, um, the two forms of of how you store energy in these springs you can either use turgor pressure or you can use desiccation yeah. um, i think it's really cool how these springs are very in tune with the environment so um of course these springs rely on either accumulating water or drying out yeah um yeah they're, they're, it's they're incredible and they're, it's a whole different range of questions compared to say an animal system where we're looking at a muscle deforming a spring you know and right. i feel like there's a whole um new field out there to, to look at how how do these plant springs work and what can we learn from these plant springs that are oftentimes both the motor and the spring you know uh-huh. so in this case in, in the animal system you're looking at a muscle which kind of deforms a spring so it's, it's really you can think of it in the macroscope kind of a meta scale of your arm deforming a bow when you're drawing a bow and arrow mm. Um, but in this case of the witch hazel, the, mo- the motor and spring are the same structure. The endocarp is both the motor and the spring. As it, as it dries out, it um, it deforms and stores more energy, and eventually pinches on the seed to shoot it out. Yeah. So that is really crazy and and really cool to think about. And I think that's a whole field worth studying.
0: That's a neat perspective. And I mean, you hinted at it by some of the other references you've brought in. The plant world is full of ballistic seed dispersal options, and there's plenty more I'm sure to be described. So it's one of those like. Pick your adventure. Where do you want to go? What kind of plants do you want to study? Do you want to say, hang out in a garden? Do you want to go off into the jungle?
1: You know, it's there's exactly. a whole field out there for you. And that's the that's the kind of uh, the selfish goal I kind of had in, in throwing this paper <laughs> out there is I really want people just to, to get the same this kind of data and uh, measure the 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 um, properties of the of the projectile, so the mass yeah. of the projectile, uh, the velocity of the projectile, right. but also look at the spring because I think if we just look at just the projectile's mass and its its speed. We're only getting half the picture. We're only getting the, the seed side of the things. Yeah. But what about the spring? How does the spring allow for that velocity to happen or, sure. or energy transfer to happen? And I think if, if we gather that data for all those examples I listed, we'll have a better idea on 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 these plant springs and be able to compare them to animal springs, to robotic systems, to each other. You know, right.
0: Right, too. And I mean, even more selfish to me is like this, this being on the horizon of seeing something really no one's ever seen before. Because if you're the first person to turn a high speed camera to these types of things, I mean, this truly is, you're seeing the first images captured of the details of these, these whole experiences.
1: I mean, that's incredible. It's it really is incredible. And if you have a, a, a mechanical inclination, it's really cool to see the, the different kinds of uh, uh, ways they launch their seeds. If you look at Oxalis, you, you ever have those uh, kind of half spherical popper, popper toys? Uh, yeah. Inside out, put it in your hand and let it go
0: off. Torture your sister uh, by putting them on her head. Sorry, Liz. Yeah, it really slaps you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah it, you can imagine the Oxalis uh, mechanism as one of those popper toys and you put a ping pong ball on them. I, this is not my idea. I think this is out sure, of sure. paper out there. But they, they say it, they kind of describe it this way, where you have a ping pong ball on this inverted popper toy, and it kind of shoots off that way. That's a really similar structure, where you have this um, structure surrounding the seed that inverts and flips the seed out. If you look at Cardamine hirsuta, I, I might be butchering the, the scientific name of that, but um, it, it's 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 fruits kind of have this um, mechanism that's similar to one of those snap bracelets, Oh, nice. um, where you kind of they kind of kind of um, have a, a buckle instability, and they kind of start rolling up. And as they roll up, they're kind of flinging seeds out as they go. If you had them under an IC camera, um, it's incredible. You can really see those those two examples. That's exciting. And like you said, the
0: applications that can come from this. I mean, it is cool to see it and study it just because it's there and it exists. But learning from nature is one of the many ways we can kind of dig ourselves out of the, the, the hole of modern humanity and what we're doing to the planet in a lot of ways. So like, and that's what's cool is you never know who's going to pick up this work and go, I have an application for that.
1: Right, exactly. Nice. It's really inspiring.
0: So, you know, you're you're on the cusp of finishing up your PhD. Congratulations. I'm sure you're going to you. do just fine. But, like, where do you want to go with this? Are you going to stay with plants? Or are you going to just see where the world takes you? I mean, all of biology is fascinating. So, you've got quite a, a set of options in front of you.
1: I'll kind of see where the where the world takes me. Um, I'm really interested in, of course, in, in this, this plant research and as I alluded to, there's so much more to study about these plant and just the witch hazel alone, there's so much more to study. So I think one of the next steps, the immediate steps, aka near the last chapter of my PhD is um, the, the the aerodynamic effects of these seeds as they fly uh, to the air yeah. and how their mass kind of affects that, but also their shape. They kind of have these weird football shaped structures. So um, maybe this will lend to the aerodynamics. I don't know. I've also gotten really interested in the field of material science and the mm-hmm. kind of relationship between um, these biological springs and um, human made springs or human made materials. Hmm. And a lot of times the the, the materials, app- the things we learn from um, studying these biological springs can be also applied to the field of um, material science. Excellent. That's exciting.
0: And yeah, I mean, talk about a fruitful career opportunity <laughs> there you know like no pun intended but also sure um, yeah. <laughs> I mean the options are limitless and I feel like it's only it's it's a whole realm of study that's only going to become more and more important especially as technology advances and becomes more affordable
1: yes definitely awesome
0: so with that in mind if people want to keep a finger on the pulse of wherever you go with these sorts of questions and inquiries uh, where do you recommend they go looking to find out more
1: Oh, okay. So, um, I I am really overdue to making an actual website for myself, <laughs> or for making a a Twitter account, or this kind of academic yeah uh, things reach to me. <laughs> so, uh, unfortunately, I have to say you can just reach reach me on email. I mean, uh, jfj7 at dupe.edu if you want to ask me about uh this research. Um, but I would say just check out the papers that I, I put out if you're interested more in what I did before with the with the an- with the animal side of things. Um check out the paper I had on trap giants and measuring their energetics using a pendulum. It's kind of nice. like a teaser. Um, and then of course my most recent paper, I'm really proud of this one. This is a, a really cool uh, accumulation. of A lot of my ideas in this one, it's, it's the most recent paper um, at Royal Society Interface. Awesome.
0: Well, Justin, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us about that and for doing it so eloquently. I'm a total noob when it comes to these sorts of concepts of mechanics and physics, but uh, you did great and uh, we really appreciate it. But Thanks for investigating weird mechanisms. I mean, it's so cool <laughs> to get to learn about this sort of stuff. So we appreciate it and best of luck, but you're going to be fine.
1: Thank you so much. This right, is incredible time.
0: Good. Well, hang in there and uh, keep it up. All right. Mind-blowing, isn't it? The mechanics of this stuff is just incredible. Evolution is amazing and plants offer so much fodder for investigation. As he mentioned, this isn't the only ballistic seed dispersal mechanism out there. There are many more worth studying, and I thank Justin for taking time out of his busy schedule to talk with us about it. As always, all of the relevant links can be found in the show notes over at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast, so go check those out. While you're over there, check out all of the ways you can help support this show, because shows like this don't happen without support. As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, we have customizable merch available, we also have stickers, I also have a book, and if you're really looking to go the extra mile in supporting Indefensible Plants, consider becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash Plants. But that is it for this week. I thank you all for listening. Make sure to hit that subscribe button and keep checking back in, but until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.